Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. So hope you're ready. Good morning. Good morning. Wow. I feel loved. Um, if you're a guest or a visitor, uh, I hope you feel really at home among us. Um, I hope you feel really, really welcome. We are thrilled that you're here. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Andy. I'm part of the team uh, here at Lagan Valley Vineyard. I do like it when people talk back, um, so long as it's encouraging and appropriate. If you get start heckling me, you get thrown out. Um, but. I just want to um, highlight what Chris was saying about our newcomers gathering. If you have um, connected with us recently and you, you haven't uh, got along to a newcomers uh, meal, you're so welcome. Please just let one of us know that you plan on coming. If this is your first time here this morning and you think, yeah, I'd like to find out some more about what's kind of going on, um, you'd be so welcome to join us. Just let one of us know before, uh, before you leave. Um, so this morning we're going to finish uh, Matthew chapter 4 in lots of ways. Uh, this is really the end of the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Everything in uh, Matthew's gospel has kind of been leading us up to this moment, um, preparing for what we will see unfold in the rest of the public ministry of Jesus. There's loads going on here, but uh, before we dive into the detail, I just want to give you a little bit of context of what we see happening. You'll see in verse 12, I think, the first thing that you notice is Jesus' cousin, John, has been arrested. I don't know if you're anything like me, but you read that kind of detail and swiftly move on. That's just kind of filler in the background, a little bit of news. It's actually a really important detail. John's prophetic rants in the wilderness have caught the attention of those who have a vested interest in keeping people content with the status quo. And they've thrown John in prison. The context for what's going on and what's about to happen, that's the backdrop. It's not just like, oh, and by the way, John's in jail. It's like the stuff that's swirling around this conversation, which we're gonna unpack around what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God is literally getting people thrown in jail. Like people are being ripped out of their houses and stuck in prison. It's not just kind of a small minor detail there. It's really helpful to understand what's in the mind and the hearts of those that are getting around this message. It's dangerous. It's revolutionary. People are already paying an incredibly high price for what's going on. Jesus has also moved house. He's left Nazareth and has moved to a city called Capernaum. Capernaum was a much more significant city than Nazareth, around four times the size. And Matthew wants to make sure his audience know that this isn't just a random move. It's not like house prices in Capernaum were better than Nazareth. It's not like Jesus is thinking, public ministry is about to begin. This little hovel isn't going to do. I need a palace with a library and a study. I need a place where people can come and meet me and all of that kind of stuff. That's not what's going on. Capernaum was in a specific region that Isaiah had prophesied about. He said, out of this place, the Messiah 
God's king is about to appear from. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. My kids have this tendency sometimes in the middle of the night or early in the morning, they come in to wake us up and they turn the big light on. You know that moment when you've been asleep and someone turns the big light on, you're like, ah, what's happening? That's what Isaiah is prophesying here. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. One of the reasons why we often find it difficult to identify the voice of God in our lives is we think that it'll feel like a masseuse. Like when God comes, it's gonna make me feel so much better. When reality, often when God speaks to us, it's like someone turning the big light on. It's like, whoa, give me a minute. It's incredibly disruptive, disorientating even. When God speaks to us, often it requires a moment for us to go, hold on a second, I've completely lost my bearings. I wonder, what has God been trying to speak to you about that you've missed because you think that mustn't be God, it feels dazzling or disorientating or disruptive? That's what's going on here. Someone turns the big light on and everyone needs a moment to kind of find themselves again. Verse 17 is then the beginning of the rest of the story. Verse 17 is the beginning of the rest of the story of Matthew's gospel. It's the rest of the story that we see played out in Acts It's the beginning of the rest of the story that we see played out in the early church. It's the beginning of the rest of the story that's been playing itself out for the last 2,000 years of world history. And it's the beginning of the rest of the story that you and I are supposed to be living into here and now in 2020 in Northern Ireland. Verse 17 says this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or another way of understanding that verse, from that time on, Jesus began his proclamation, repent, the kingdom of heaven is arriving. The rest of the story from that moment right up until this moment is pretty simple. Jesus and those who follow him proclaim this message and demonstrate its reality and teach others how to do the same and live into that reality. That's all Christianity is. Proclamation, demonstration, of the present reality, the kingdom of God. This is the gospel that Jesus preached. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is arriving. Don't get stuck on those two words. The other gospel writers use kingdom of God. Matthew uses heaven because he wrote particularly to a Jewish audience who would have found the name of God slightly uh, difficult to get past. Exactly the same thing, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Same idea. I wonder, do you know what it is? Like This is the central message of Jesus and the early church. 
And if you want some detail on that, just go and pay attention to how Luke structures his book of Acts. I think it's verse eight of chapter one. He talks about Jesus being with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And I think it's verse 31 of chapter 28, the very last verse of the book of Acts. You see Paul under house arrest in Rome, teaching people about Jesus and proclaiming the kingdom of God. It's no accident that Luke, at the very beginning of his book and the very end of his book, has Jesus proclaiming the kingdom and Paul proclaiming Jesus and the kingdom. The kingdom of God, an understanding of this gospel of the kingdom is the absolute foundation of the church, begs the question, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? We're not all that familiar with kingdom ideology and even metaphors and reality. And yet it is absolutely central. You'll have heard me say this before. Our best stab at a user-friendly definition of the kingdom of God, it's not complete, but it is helpful, is the kingdom of God is the place where what God wants happens. The kingdom of God is the place where what God wants happens. That's what the kingdom is. And Jesus is looking at these people saying, repent, because the kingdom of God is arriving. And you see through the rest of Jesus' life and those who follow him, an expression, demonstration of the desires of God. That's why people get healed. That's why the demonized get set free. That's why Jesus confronts the systems of oppression and injustice. It's the place where the kingdom, sorry, where the desires of God get made real. That's what the kingdom is. You see, the people in Israel were desperate. They were desperate for a deliverer. They were longing for a revolution. And this message was exactly that. The kingdom of heaven arriving wasn't some mystical or theological concept that those listening to Jesus would have found hard to grasp. They wouldn't have needed somebody like me to stand up and say, see folks, what Jesus actually means is the kingdom is where what God wants happens and that's about to arrive and you're about to see that. They would have known that instantly. What he was talking about was a longed for political and national reality. For the Jews, they were very familiar with kingdom movements. The previous 90 years to those listening to Jesus in this moment have been occupied by the Roman kingdom and there's a long list of other foreign kingdoms who have been occupying their land before that. The people knew how kingdoms worked, namely that your desires and your life were determined by the whims of the king of the particular kingdom that was in control. That's how kingdoms worked for those that were listening to Jesus, that your life was determined by the desires and whims of the particular king of the particular kingdom that you were a part of. That's why John gets whisked off and thrown in prison because the things that he is saying are conflicting with the desires and whims of the king of the kingdom that was an occupation in Israel, namely the Roman emperor. And the people listening to Jesus were longing for God to fulfill his promises to them, to come and rule them himself. That was their longing. So when Jesus begins to announce, repent, 
the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is arriving. This wasn't heard as a spiritual ideal. It was heard as a cry of revolution. He was saying a new authority that is going to give you life and health and wholeness is about to establish itself among you. And we spoke about repentance a couple of weeks ago, but it's important we realize that the word repentance has much more to do with what we're doing with our lives than it does about how we feel about them. Repentance has way more to do with what we're doing with our lives than how we feel about our lives. For, for many of us, we think this is what repentance is all about. We make a mistake, we feel bad, we repent, God forgives us, we feel better. It's a complete misunderstanding of what repentance is all about, particularly the biblical idea. Our frame for biblical repentance is rooted much more in our actions than our feelings. The word repent literally means to change direction. I was going this way, I repent, and I'm now going this way. This is why for lots of us, repentance doesn't work because we're not going anyway. We stand here and we make a mistake and we feel a bit bad about it and we repent and then we feel better but we don't actually move anywhere and nothing in our lives change. If your repentance doesn't cause you to change direction, it's not repentance, it's more like an apology. And apologies without changed behavior are pretty meaningless, right? I have to repeatedly apologize for not putting dishes in the sink in my house. And a, a weak moment in my wife's life, she said once, I don't care about your apologies, just start putting the dishes in the sink. <laughs> this is a dangerous message to preach when your wife is in the room. Notice I have never repented of not putting the dishes in the sink. Simply apologized. Because we can apologize and not change. Repentance is about changing direction. Changing the trajectory of our lives. I was uh, chatting with a really good friend who hasn't been married for very long this week. And uh, I said, how's things going at home? And he said, I've, I've, had, I've had a complete brainwave. I was like, really? Wow, that sounds pretty exciting. What happened? And he said, I realized that love is doing things when you don't feel like it. <laughs> we, we did the marriage preparation for this particular couple. I'm resigning. <laughs> I was like, wait, should I get out of me again? I'll not tell you how long they've been married because you'll be able to figure out who it is. Um, <laughs> repentance is about what we do, not how we feel. Repentance is about what we do, not about what we feel. And Jesus calls people to repent because he knew their lives were heading in the wrong direction. He says the kingdom of God is arriving and your lives are not heading the direction that it's heading. Therefore, change the direction of your life and get in line with the direction of the kingdom. That's what repentance 
in this passage is all about, you see, the people listening to Jesus were consumed with ideas of revolution and revolution that looked like every other revolution they had ever seen. They want a military leader to rise up and take power by force. They want to overthrow violence with violence, to fight darkness with darkness. But the people of God and Jesus himself were always supposed to deal with darkness by being light. Jesus is saying you need to repent because the direction you're heading for is not consistent with the direction of God's kingdom. Many of Jesus' contemporaries were eager to get on with the fight. And Jesus' message of repentance is not that they should feel sorry about some personal private sin. Jesus' call for us to repent is not that you should feel sorry for some personal private sin. Of course you should. But that's not what he's talking about here. The point is that the people's lives were headed in a completely wrong direction. And so often I see this in my own life and those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus. We think we can be formed in the ways of righteousness and peace and joy whilst keeping our lives firmly rooted in a way of doing life that is ruled by the natural, physical, explainable world around us. Let me ask you a question this afternoon. Does the spiritual inform how you see and engage with the natural or the natural inform how you see and engage with the spiritual? Does the spiritual realm and the realities of that inform how you engage with the natural realm and the realities around that? Or does the natural inform how you engage with the spiritual? Is there anything different going on here? For Jesus and those who followed him, spiritual reality informed completely how they engaged with the world around them. Jesus immersed those who followed him in a way of life that taught them to engage with the things that God sees and God says, says as way more important than anything else. Whenever you, you notice Jesus playfully chastising his followers when he does something that they miss or they freak out about something that they should be quite peaceful about and he says things like, you guys have no faith, or you have little faith. What's he pointing at there? He's saying that you're allowing your lens of the natural to determine how you see the spiritual. You've totally misunderstood this. You've got it backwards. So when Jesus is asleep on the boat, and they're all having this wild panic, and he gets up and tells the storm to be quiet and to calm down, and then he corrects the disciples, what he's saying is you're not seeing correctly. You're panicking about something that you don't even need to worry about. So most of us live our lives. The natural informs the spiritual when real maturity in Christ is learning how to see the reality of the spiritual and let it inform how we engage with the natural. That's what's going on when Jesus is sleeping in storms, standing on seas, healing illnesses and driving out demons. He says, there's a spiritual reality that's about to invade here. Watch this. And the pinnacle, of course, of this moment is Christ on the cross. The natural sees humiliating execution and defeat. 
Yet the spiritual sees the most glorious, humble victory over death itself. See, it's interesting. People who don't yet follow Jesus can learn to see God in hindsight. Look back on their lives and think, man, there were moments in my life where God must have intervened. It's people that don't even follow Jesus can learn how to do that. The immature Christian can learn how to notice God in their present. God's at work around me. I feel it. I sense it. But maturity is being able to see God's kingdom in your future moving towards you and your ability to align your life with that regardless of what's going on in your natural circumstance. And that's what repentance is. Learning how to see the future kingdom moving towards us and changing the direction of our lives to align with that. This is what's so important for us to understand. Many of us, our lives are heading good directions and we need to repent. Now listen, we live in Northern Ireland. As soon as I say that word, you go, oh, that's right, I need to repent. <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. Your lives are headed in good direction. You need to repent to align your life with the God direction. And those two things are often different and can feel like someone turning the big light on. Whoa, but this is good. I told you about this before. Um, Literally the month we finished 10 years of work on our house. The very same month, 10 years of renovation work done, finally got a guest room that's not a sofa bed in our front room. Literally the same month we felt like God said, right, time to sell and move. It's like someone turned the big light on. You're like, wait, what? Completely disorientated. It's in moments like that you need good friends. I'll never forget about a week later, standing in the field that we are now building a house on with Mark Wilkinson. We're both standing in this field and I'm looking at him going, someone's just turned the big light on. Do you think we've completely lost our minds? And Mark wept and said, I think this is Jesus. Sometimes our lives are headed in perfectly good places and we need to repent, to realign ourselves with what God's doing. The people listening to Jesus weren't living their lives that way, hence Jesus calls them to change direction. He's calling them to reject fighting and killing as a way to end fighting and killing. He's calling a nation back from the cliff edge of violent revolution, back to an embrace of God's work done in God's ways, to embrace light over darkness, peace, healing, and forgiveness. How often do we justify darkness, war, oppression, and unforgiveness in the name of the greater good? I'm risking taking us into a fairly complex ethics class. You'll be glad to know we're not going there. What happens when, as N.T. Wright says, the supposed light bearers insist on darkness. 
we get darkness. If the peace people insist on war, then war they shall have. If the people called to bring God's love and forgiveness into the world insist on hatred and harboring bitterness, then hatred and bitterness we shall have. We know lots about what I'm talking about here in this little place called Northern Ireland. This isn't God's judgment. It's just what we've asked for. The question that faces all of us is what direction are our lives headed? And is that direction consistent with the direction of the kingdom? What kingdom has your allegiance? There's so much left to unpack in this passage for us. I'm just going to skirt through it quickly because I want us to respond on a couple of things. But after this moment where Jesus proclaims, repent. God's kingdom is coming. He goes on to call his first disciples. These fishermen weren't paupers. They're small business owners who leave their families and their livelihoods to follow Jesus. His proclamation and demonstration of the arriving kingdom of God then gets unpacked in the last half of the chapter. Verse 23, he heals every disease and illness. Those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, they all get healed and news about Jesus begins to spread everywhere. Understanding the gospel of the kingdom is really, really important for us to understand this stuff really clearly. Jesus is doing miracles and signs and wonders, not because he's the son of God, but because the kingdom of God is arriving. It's really easy for us to see all of the miraculous work of Jesus as, well, that's just because he's the son of God, and that conveniently lets us off the hook, because we don't have to do that, right? We're not the son of God. And yet, if you read through the book of Acts, you will see all of the stuff that Jesus is doing in the gospels continue, except Jesus isn't there anymore. Because it's not about him just being the son of God and able to do all this stuff. It's about him demonstrating this is what the desires of God look like. If the kingdom is the place where what God wants happens, then let me show you what God wants. And it is incumbent upon us as followers of Jesus to never set down that crucial work. That the kingdom of God is arriving and let me show you what that looks like. An elderly lady on her deathbed gets more time with her family. I want to finish this morning wrapping up the last four weeks of teaching from Matthew 3 and 4. For those of you in the room this afternoon that are seriously thinking about not just keeping your lives neat and tidy and uh, putting a bit of religious dust on your weekly rhythms and routines, but for those of you this afternoon that are seriously thinking, how do I follow Jesus and get involved in what he's doing in the world? Matthew 3 and 4 give us a brilliant and beautiful blueprint for how to go about that. You'll remember the very beginning of chapter three when John is in the Jordan calling people to repent and baptizing them. It's the beginning of all of our journeys with Jesus. This beautiful posture of repentance, of changing direction. And then you see Jesus come 
After repentance, that's step one, by the way. Then you see Jesus come and John baptizes Jesus and he comes up out of the water. There's this beautiful moment where God the Father speaks over him and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Affirmation is the second point. We begin with repentance and then we get affirmation. Where God speaks over us, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love. With them I am well pleased. My grandfather used to tell a story of two of his best friends, Brian and Esther, and they had uh, this fairly fiery relationship. And one uh, Saturday evening at their dining table, my grandfather, who was very good at asking direct questions, looked at Esther and said, Esther, do you love Brian? I know. Some of you are like, I know where he gets it from. And I'll never forget him telling me the story. She looked back at him and said, yes, Jim, I love Brian, but what's more important, I like him. See, many of us are quite used to, we have to say, I agree, God loves me, because the Bible says it, and you know, he loved the world, and all that sort of stuff. But how many of you can say, but he likes me too? This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. The affirmation of Father God over our lives. This is my son, this is my daughter. I love them and I like them too. It's so important that we are able to embrace that from Father God. Repentance, affirmation, and then it's mad, right? Literally, the very next verse after this beautiful, this is my son, I love him, I'm pleased with him, then the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. Repentance, affirmation, testing. If you're serious about aligning your life with the direction of God's kingdom, then get ready, you will be tested. Why? Because it's in testing that our character is exposed. It's in testing that we realize where we need to grow. It's in testing that we get to say, I'm not just tired, I'm just me. And I need to grow. But listen, it's also in testing where we get authority. And then the final bit, which we've seen today, repentance, affirmation, testing, commission. We actually get sent into the destiny of God over our lives with the authority of God on our lives. The destiny of God in our lives with the authority of God on our lives. It's amazing to me how many people I observe and they're living in a version of God's destiny for them without their authority. Why? Usually they're not that great at repentance. They struggle to receive affirmation from God and they run away from testing. If you want to walk in kingdom authority, you need to learn how to repent. You need to learn how to hear and receive the affirmation of God your Father, not just a theological conscription. Yes, I believe God loves me, but actually allow him by his spirit to affirm me. And you need to learn how to embrace testing, to learn how to persevere through it. And then, and then we get to step into 
the things that God has invited us to with his authority, which is where the real fun is. We're going to respond with communion.